Thank you for joining us this month for another episode of Fraud Talk, the ACFE's monthly podcast. I'm Emily Primo, assistant editor of Fraud Magazine, and today I'm joined by Leslie Benton. Leslie is the vice president of advocacy and stakeholder engagement at the Center for Responsible Enterprise and Trade, otherwise known as create.org. Thanks for joining us, Leslie. Create.org recently launched a paper about why anti-corruption programs fail and ways companies can can move from policies to practices. Why do you think anti-corruption programs fail, and can you tell me some areas where companies are most vulnerable? Certainly. Um, and just to give you a little background, we developed the paper based on our work over the last several years with um, you know, more than 100 companies in um, markets around the world, across industries, um, small companies, medium-sized, large, and we continue to see sort of the same types of failures. So we thought it would be worth putting together a list, and as you said, we've kind of come up with a list of 10. Um, by no means is it exhaustive, but these are some of the common themes that we saw across geographies, across industries, um, across you know sizes, um, and you know I think the first thing that we see often is a lack of understanding of the actual corruption risk that companies face. This is one of the most common problems that we have encountered. Um, companies tend to think they understand sort of intuitively um, which markets are riskier, which industries are riskier, but that really fails to take into consideration the real ways in which your employees may face difficult ethical decisions. And so taking time to do very comprehensive, um, qualitative risk assessments really helps companies tailor their financial resources, their human resources, and really understand if the controls that they have in place are effective in meeting risk. And so that's one of the, the first things that we see, really, is just that failure to understand the very specific corruption risk that a company might face. So that's one, certainly one of the sort of basic problems that we see. You mentioned that there's a lack of action and that companies should employ comprehensive risk assessments. How should they do that or what kinds of risk assessments can they do? It's, um, you know, each, each company has to sort of think about their own business environment. So there is no one size fits all. And I think this is one of the reasons that this is so hard for companies. It's uh, what may work for one might not work for another. But of course there are some basic principles that companies can employ. Um, they need to think about the, the geographies where they are. And, and I say geography very specifically or market very specifically, not country, because there are you know, different risks associated with different markets. Um, they need to think about the touch points that they have with government officials, which is always one of the high-risk areas, and not just sort of in the public contracting uh, context, which people think of if you're bidding on a public contract. I think that everyone knows that's, that's risky, particularly in markets where maybe the procurement uh, regulations or rules are a little bit murky, um, where uh, you might not have a lot of support of your own to help you kind of wade through that, but also in terms of licensing and permits and um, customs, sort of there are so many ways that, that companies can touch 
government officials that they need to think about. Um, another area that they need to think about is do they have to use third parties? You know, most of the cases that come up in the United States, um, at least FCPA cases, involve some type of third party component. I think last year all 10 cases that were settled involved a third party um, bad behavior in some way. And so thinking about do we have third parties that we use in this context? Do we have a joint venture partner? Um, are we required to use third parties in certain markets, as companies certainly are? Sort of thinking about that is, is an issue. I think another issue that companies don't always think about but really is very important is how are you structured? Are you a very centralized company? Are you very decentralized? Do you have um, a very dispersed workforce? You know, how are you going to ensure that your program actually cascades through all of your offices down to the most remote of your employees? These are all the kinds of things that companies should be thinking about when they're doing their risk assessment. And, and as I said before, a lot, of, you know, a lot of companies just sort of say, well, this market is riskier than another. We understand that you know, going in, so we'll be careful. But that's, that's really not the kind of comprehensive risk assessment that I think companies should be doing, and certainly the kind that the enforcement authorities are going to expect to see if you actually do um, have an issue. And thinking more about that, well, let's say companies have decided that they are going to enact certain policies, but they're not really practicing it. Can you give some advice about how companies can more effectively move from those policies to practices? One, you know, I think one of the, the first and, and sort of foundational uh, things that companies can do, of course, is to have proper messaging from the top of the company. And, and that means, you know, very clear and visible support for the anti-corruption message. Um, it, it means more than just paying lip service to it, but really um, doing the type of sort of constant communication and training that will help employees and others that you work with understand that um, anti-corruption compliance is as important as any other sort of business process. So part of it is just messaging, and that's, you know, it's, it's necessary. It's not sufficient, but it is definitely necessary. You also have to message that compliance is everyone's responsibility in a company. It's not just the CEO or the CFO or the chief compliance officer, but everyone has responsibility for ensuring that business is done ethically and with appropriate knowledge of legal requirements and policy requirements. And, and in that regard, you know, we like to talk about tone in the middle as well as tone at the top, where many of the actual compliance problems that come up are going to arise. So it's not always at the C-suite where you're going to see these issues, but it's really where the business is done. It's in the business units. It's in, in situations where people may have just issues that arise and questions that they need to ask. And there's a lot of um, research to suggest that employees are much more likely to go to their immediate supervisor, for example, and ask questions 
or raise concerns or just sort of say, hey, this situation came up. I feel a little strange about it. What should I do? It's much more likely that someone will go to their immediate supervisor or someone in their own team than to go to the chief compliance officer or someone who's in the C-suite. So, you know, ensuring that middle management is empowered with a compliance message and also held accountable for their own employees, um, that is really important. I think that's one of the important things that companies can do in terms of moving from policies to practices. I like that, uh, the tone in the middle idea, because you're so right that, you know, people will go to their direct supervisor. They're not going to go above them. So would you say that there is a good role in monitoring for a hotline, especially for people who are out in the field? Absolutely. I think that's actually one of the most important um, aspects of your program, and certainly one, again, that um, enforcement authorities will be looking for if they're ever if you're ever in a position to have you know someone um, evaluating your program I mean the existence of a hotline is really key and it's key for a couple of reasons you know we've talked about the fact that people are more likely to go to their direct supervisor maybe one of their you know the person whose office is next door to raise problems um, but it's also true that many times people want to be able to raise a problem, but they're very concerned and they want to be able to raise it anonymously. So I think having, you know, having a hotline, having the ability for folks to raise problems anonymously is incredibly important. You know, a lot of the cases that we see today are brought to light because someone has spoken up. And they're not always comfortable in, in doing that, particularly if they think that, um, you know, it, it is Maybe they're reporting, they are reporting their supervisor or someone that they know, or maybe they just have a question and don't want to, you know, elevate it if it, ter it really is no big deal. Um, and it may turn out to be nothing, but they have, you know, somewhat of a concern. So having some way for people to bring those um, concerns to light is very important. Some companies even make, and I think it's a best practice, make their hotlines available to third parties or, or anyone to call who has you know, some concern or some potential violation to bring about. And then I would say, along with that, you know, having that hotline, again, back to training, and you'll sort of see that you know, all of these things are so intertwined. You, know, you need to train on that. You need to train on the fact that your company has a speak-up culture. That's certainly a best practice, that you want people to bring concerns to light, even if they think that they are silly or not sure, I guess silly is not the right word, but even if they're not really sure, even if they don't have evidence of a violation but they have a concern that they should feel free to bring it up and you should train that no one will be um, in any way retaliated against if they do bring up a problem. So I think, you know, companies find that hotlines are, um, you know, a really valuable tool. And then just to tie, again, specifically to monitoring, you know, looking, when companies are looking at, um, their program and they're doing their monitoring. You know, obviously one of the things they're looking at is data. And, you know, data from your hotline is a really great uh, source of information for you to know where problems may be arising, what type of problems might be arising, what kind of concerns. You know, for one thing, if you're getting the same kind of concerns, that's probably telling you you may need to do a little more training in that area. So there's so much information you can get from hotline complaints, even if they don't turn into true corruption incidents, if they're not, they don't rise to that level, they still give you just a tremendous amount of information that you can use to improve your program. So moving on, 
What are some practical steps a company can take to engage their employees and third parties? Well, um, you know, one of the most important ways, of course, is through training. And here's another area where companies, you know, some get it right, others get it wrong. Um, the old model of sort of annual compliance training, sort of check the box, um, isn't as effective as other modes that we see. Um, it may, again, be something that you want to do. You know, you can give everyone the same training, ensure that there's some consistency. But really what we find is um, engaging with your employees on a more regular basis, maybe with short bursts of training, particularly around um, times that may have more pressures associated with them, end of quarter, when people need to make sales goals, end of year, holiday times when um, gift giving is more common. So end of year in some countries, you know, mid-harvest festivals, mid-autumn festivals, you know, each con company knows um, what its pressure points are, and you know, depending upon the markets that they're operating in. But training around those times, Training in short bursts, maybe focusing on one particular aspect of your program one month and another the next. Training with sort of scenarios, ensuring that uh, you're actually presenting to your employees the kinds of situations that they actually might face, not just sort of generic examples of corruption that some company may have faced at some point in time, but really trying to understand, okay, how is this going to happen with our employees? What kind of risks are they really going to face? And training them on those scenarios and kind of talking through so that they understand and that they're well-informed and armed if something does happen. And, and that's, I guess, on this point, and I'll wrap up on this point, but one of the things that I think is really important in terms of engaging with employees, and I think this is true for third parties as well, is to help them understand that training is actually to arm them. As, it's for their benefit so that they can do their business and do it while um, complying with law and your own policies, your own requirements, and your own expectations, and giving them the kind of tools that they may need to face situations that, could, that really can and do arise. And so helping them understand that this is not just, a, you know, oh, we have to understand what the law says and then we're going to go about our business, but this is really to help you do your business in a way that makes sense for you and for us and to help you avoid even inadvertent um, violations. I think when you so you know when you're engaging with your employees, you sort of have to couch compliance as a business tool. This isn't just an obstacle; it shouldn't be. But this is a way for you to do your business, to take advantage of some opportunities that can have some risk associated with them, but also huge rewards. And we can do that in a culture of compliance. And it's that that kind of messaging, I think, that and that kind of training that's really important. You mentioned that during that point that. It's important to do these trainings around times where there's more pressure because um, teams might feel they need to meet quotas at any cost. And how do you align anti-corruption practices with incentives around these times when they feel like they need to meet quota? That's a tough situation for companies and, and certainly one where we do see failures. Um, there are some success stories out there, but you're absolutely right. This is one of the big issues when you know, your sales or your marketing folks who may often be in the field, often in high-risk environments, they may not have um, a direct access to compliance. 
they could very well have questions that they need to have answered. Um, so, you know, they're out there, they're doing the business. Often they're compensated on an incentive kind of basis, you know, bonuses that are tied to sales quotas. Um, they may only be um, evaluated on their own individual um, performance rather than group performance or unit performance. So, you know, it's – and then so when you have a compliance message, even one that's very um, – earnestly given and meant, but when you have that message juxtaposed against this sort of incentive to get the deal done, it's easy for people to start skirting the line. And I think there's no particular silver bullet. I know that some companies have started thinking about, in the very most high-risk markets, um, going to more of a salary base as opposed to an incentive-based compensation. But none of us think that incentive-based compensation is going away anytime soon. But it does become important to um, then, when you're evaluating those folks, to take compliance into account. It, it becomes even more important to do that kind of messaging. It becomes very important to embed compliance in those units where you know the risks really are um, so that that person does have a resource to go to. Um, and that can be somebody from the compliance function or the legal function, you know, being in every office. Or it could be a general manager um, who, for whom part of his or her responsibility really is to ensure compliance. And then that's the, that's the resource that you have for your field staff or your sales staff. Um, but it, it isn't an easy issue. It's a very tough nut to crack. I think it's just it's important, though, for companies to acknowledge that it's an issue and to acknowledge that there can be seemingly be a conflict between um, sort of those messages, the compliance message and the sales message. But I think if you're doing the right messaging, doing the right training, helping people understand that compliance is a business tool that you can perform in an ethical and responsible way, then you're doing as much as you can to sort of get over that kind of, you know, seeming conflict and messages. Thank you so much for talking to us today. Oh, you're absolutely welcome. I'm happy to do it. Thanks for listening. To find more episodes, go to acfe.com slash podcast. You can also find us in the iTunes store under ACFE Fraud Talk. This is Emily Primo signing off.